I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time I'm sharing a story about a 40-something-year-old drifter who returns to his hometown after his parents' death to find out the only thing left to him in their will is a plastic magic eight ball. All right, let's get to work. Mr. Know-It-All Jerry sat in his parents' attic thinking he'd be better off dead. His brother got the family business, his sister the family fortune. The only thing bequeathed to Jerry in his parents' will was in his hands. At 45, Jerry still hadn't done anything substantial with his life. While his younger brother traded stocks and owned two successful businesses, and his younger sister married somebody like Jerry's younger brother, Jerry spent his adult years traveling the country in a 1981 Cutlass station wagon, pulling a 1959 teardrop trailer behind. It bothered Jerry that his siblings and extended family viewed him as the black sheep of the family, simply for living the life he enjoyed. He may not have owned his own house or had much saved, but it's only a handful of people who have lost count of how many times they've watched the sun rise and set over the Grand Canyon, the Redwood Forests, and the valleys of upstate New York. At family reunions, people Jerry's age and older ignored him, and when he tried talking to a younger niece, nephew, or cousin, the children were pulled away from his influence by parents with all the vigor reserved for shady strangers in trench coats offering sticky candy. He was the embarrassment of the Hatchard clan, a grown man who preferred greasy spoons to fine restaurants, beat-up station wagons to Mercedes sedans, the occasional Motel 8 to the Four Seasons. By the time Jerry got the news that his parents had died, their W-220S class hit head-on by a station wagon full of drunks, they had already been buried in the family plot. Had Jerry not bumped into an old hometown friend, who knows how long it would have been before he found out his mother and father died in a flash of grinding steel and broken bottles. There was no denying he was a hard person to get in touch with, but when he returned to his tiny hometown in East Texas that his family practically owned, it was clear that nobody in the family even attempted to tell him his parents were dead. His younger brother's words to Jerry upon his arrival, If you're here to see if you got a piece of dad's business or their money, you're shit out of luck, buck. The business was left to me and Lizzie got the money in house. So I guess you can go back to wherever it is you're living these days. There was nothing left to you in the will. But that wasn't true. There was one line in the will stating Jerry wouldn't come away empty-handed. Not that riches were what he was after. He may not have been the best son, but there was no denying his love for his parents. In the will, Jerry's mother and father specifically stated that Jerry was to take sole possession of the contents of their attic. After visiting his parents' grave, he went to the house where he grew up. Lizzie answered the door. It was clear she already had a new bow to keep her company when her husband was away on business. Beside her stood some 22-year-old with dark wavy hair and washboard abs a bluegrass band would kill for. 
Oh, it's you, she said in a grating Southern Belle accent that couldn't cover the East Texas twang. Dean said you'd be by. If you think Mother and Daddy left you something good, you're going to be sorely let down. It's good to see you too, Liz. She made a face as though it were Jerry who started the conversation off on a sour note, and then she stepped aside, allowing him to enter the house where he grew up. Just go get what's yours and leave, his younger sister said. Her boy toy stepped away from the stairway. Jerry wandered up several flights of stairs where he finally reached the attic devoid of everything, except one small box smack dab in the middle of the dark room. Jerry hated attics, but he didn't turn on the light. The sun shined through the windows enough that any vampire or mummy would think twice about taking another victim with an overactive imagination who dared tread on their unholy grounds. Jerry sat down on the floor and reached for the box. He took it in his hands and cried. The firstborn son of Lawrence and Beth Hatcher had lost the only people in life he ever felt loved him unconditionally, and all they left him was a toy, a dusty old magic eight ball in its original box. He took the toy from the frail box, gave it a shake, and quietly said, Is this a joke? He turned the magic eight ball over and looked in its little round window. Through the blue liquid, the icosahedron inside finished tumbling and floated to the clear plastic, revealing the answer. My reply is no. Jerry looked at the toy, trying to remember playing with it as a child. Growing up, there were horseback riding lessons, football practice, and reading, but he couldn't remember the magic eight ball. Jerry's childhood was devoid of cheap plastic toys that shot rubber bullets, zipped across the floor like nitro-burning funny cars, or revealed answers to heartfelt questions defining the very nature of who we are. When he went to place the magic eight ball back where he found it, he saw a post-it note in the bottom of the box. He struggled to not break down for a second time. Jerry finally got the answer to a question never asked, but one that haunted him since his siblings came into the world. Jerry, I always loved you best. Dad. It seems strange that a man who had everything a person could want, and then some, would express his love for his favorite child by leaving them a cheap piece of liquid-filled plastic, while leaving his less favorite children riches most people couldn't even begin to fathom. Jerry went back downstairs, carrying the magic eight ball in his hand. Before leaving his childhood home for the last time, his sister said, Have fun with your little toy. Jerry looked at her young boyfriend and said, You too, Liz. The next morning when he woke up, the first thing Jerry did, even before taking a slug of cold coffee from the mug in a handmade cup holder in his tiny trailer, was to take the magic eight ball into his hands. Shaking it, he said, Will I die today? Jerry rolled the eight ball over and read, My reply is no. Next, he asked, Will I have a good day? The magic eight ball answered, Without a doubt. It dawned on him how ridiculous it was, asking questions to a piece of plastic and genuinely hanging on the edge for its answer, as though it were full of the wisdom of ancient seers. But there was something he couldn't put his finger on. He suddenly felt positive about things. In fact, holding the magic eight ball in his hands and looking at the cold cup of coffee in his tiny teardrop trailer, Jerry decided he'd splurge and do all he could to make the day a good one. Jerry went to the gas station across the street to get a hot cup of coffee. 
A couple teenage girls on their way to school were in front of them at the coffee station, buying the biggest cups of flavored coffee available. They mixed different coffees, creams, and toppings, ensuring a sugar and caffeine buzz that would carry them all the way through to lunch. When they were done, Jerry grabbed a large cup and filled it with black coffee. He knew where caffeine really lived. He paid for his cup after the giggling girls paid for their concoctions and a handful of sour candy that they picked up on their way to the register. On his way to the door, Jerry picked up a lottery slip. There was a time when the American dream came through hard work, something that brought with it even richer rewards than wealth, the pride of a plan working out. But that dream had long been pushed aside, and a new American dream came in a different wrapper, something that could be purchased for a buck or two at a convenience store in the form of six lucky numbers. Jerry sat in the middle of the small bed that took up the entirety of the inside of his teardrop trailer. In his left hand was a hot cup of coffee growing cooler. In his right hand, a pen advertising a wallpaper hanger in South Carolina. Before him on the bed lay the magic eight ball. His right leg held the lottery slip. When the coffee was cool enough, Jerry clicked the pen to ready position, chugged the coffee in a few huge gulps, and took the magic eight ball in his left hand. The motion seemed ritualistic, or at least rehearsed, like somebody licking the salt off the back of their hand, slamming a tequila shot, and biting into a lime. He thought about his parents as he asked, Will the first number be one? The magic eight ball rolled to life. My sources say no. Will the first number be two? Outlook not so good. Jerry counted up until finally saying, Will the first number be 43? This time, when he turned the magic eight ball over and looked in the window, he got the first reply of six. Yes, definitely. The next morning, when Jerry went to get a hot cup of coffee from the gas station, he asked the cashier for a list of the previous evening's lottery numbers. The cashier pointed to a pile of numbers printed out for regular customers. Jerry looked at the slip of paper with the six winning numbers. Just like that, his life was forever changed. He paid for the coffee, and on his way out of the gas station, he held the door open for two giggling <laughs> girls in need of a chemical and caffeine mixture that would fuel their day. When Jerry collected his winnings, he told the officials in Austin that he wanted to remain as anonymous as possible. They told him his win would go unnoticed. The American dream slid beneath the radar of a society that largely considered a $12 million lottery not even worth playing. Six months later, when Jerry decided to win the lottery again, the $98 million jackpot in his second win in a year ensured he wouldn't go unnoticed. This time when he collected his winnings in Austin, driving to the Capitol in a Mercedes E-Class wagon pulling his old teardrop trailer, People wanted to know more about the man who won $110 million in just a matter of months. Jerry still traveled the country in his car and trailer, but when he wasn't on the road, he kicked up his heels in his new McMansion. He could afford much more than his $750,000 home in the center of the Lone Star State, but wandering the empty rooms at night, Jerry wondered why he even splurged as much as he did. With his second lotto win came the interviews. He was a lovable schlub from an affluent family, but he lived on next to nothing for years and suddenly had in his lap everything most Americans dreamed about. Most of the interviews were about growing up rich, wondering why he gave it all up, 
and what it was like getting it all back. Of all the questions Jerry was asked, only one really interested him. Is there anything in life you've wanted to do that you haven't done yet? Jerry's answer? I've always wanted to travel around Europe, and I've always wanted to skydive. When asked if he would finally see Europe or jump out of a plane, Jerry explained to the interviewer that a fear of flying kept him from doing either. It wasn't jumping out of a plane that scared him, but the flight itself. Even with a parachute strapped to his back, he explained that planes sometimes crashed on takeoff before passengers even had a chance of leaping to safety. Of course, with the press coverage came the attention. People asked Jerry for winning lottery numbers anytime he ventured from his house. Old friends he hadn't heard from since elementary school wrote to him asking for loans. Even people who were well off asked for money. Some people even said that Jerry owed it to them to give him money. Jerry would have welcomed the usual interruptions instead of his brother and sister appearing one day at his front door. What do you two want? The eight ball, Dean said. What eight ball? The eight ball daddy left you, Liz said. It's obvious. You go from a nothing to a millionaire like that? There's no way you could have done all this on your own. Oh, kind of like how you and Liz would have nothing if it weren't for mom and dad? I had a successful business before I inherited dad's business. I didn't need it. I've always done good for myself. Oh yeah, that's right, Jerry said. The successful internet porn business that you always describe as a dot-com to people who ask what you do for a living. And all your inside trades. Yeah, those are something to be proud of, Dino. And isn't Dad's business less successful since you took over? Dean clenched his teeth, creating the dimple in his chin that appeared when he was angry. It's still successful. How about you come back next year and we can have this talk again, Jerry said. If Dad's business is more successful, I'll give you a million dollars. And if it's less successful, all you owe me is one dollar. Give us the eight ball, Liz said. Dad left it to me for a reason. It had been years since Dean and Liz teamed up on him, but Jerry was ready for a fight. You two got everything else. I'm not giving it to you. We're not asking you to give it to us, just to share it, Dean said. I think, had Mom and Dad known what that eight ball does, that they would have wanted all of us to share in its power. Dad knew exactly what he was doing. Why else would he leave you the business, Liz the house and all the money, and me the magic eight ball? Come on, Jerry. We're your siblings, Liz said. Yeah, that's right. You were so kind that you shared so much of what Mom and Dad left you to. You were so warm and courteous when I came by the house to get the eight ball. What am I thinking? We're such a tight family. He started closing the door, but Dean got his foot in. He shoved Jerry aside and forced his way into the house. Liz jumped on Jerry's back, trying to keep him occupied, but Jerry got the family gene of size. Knowing what they were really there for, he had no qualms going back first into the door jam, smashing his sister like a buzzing gnat. By the time Jerry got to the living room, Dean had found the magic eight ball on the coffee table. Dean shook it and said, Will I get out of here with this magic eight ball? He looked at the answer in the window. Don't count on it! The two-a-day football practice sessions Jerry was forced to take when he was younger paid off. <laughs> he drove his right shoulder into the flesh above Dean's hip, hitting his brother so hard that the couch didn't break his fall. The couch toppled over, and as the two brothers followed, 
All three siblings watched as the magic eight ball flew from Dean's hand, arched high in the air in perceived slow motion time, and cracked on the fireplace hearth. They waited for the liquid to cover the Italian marble, but nothing happened. As Dean nursed his aching side, Jerry picked up the magic eight ball. Get out of here before I call the police and tell them what you're up to. Do you really think the police would believe that a magic eight ball is the source of all your wealth? Liz said. No, but it's still stealing and trespassing. And since I gave the chief of police money for his son's oral surgery, I think even if I just called on a whim and asked to have you arrested, he'd gladly lock you two up. Jerry pointed to the front door and his siblings skulked away like jackals. When they were gone, Jerry shook the magic eight ball and asked, Will they be back for this? It is certain. He returned to the eight ball after thinking for a couple minutes. Will what I'm thinking about work and keep them away? Yes. Jerry examined the crack in the magic eight ball, still surprised its blue fluid didn't spill from the plastic shell, staining his marble hearth. He went to the garage and set the toy on his workbench. Using the circular blade of a Dremel tool, Jerry cut around the eight ball's shell, revealing a white cylinder inside. If the black shell of the eight ball were its skull, the cylinder inside was its brain. With a small drill bit, Jerry made a hole near the top of the cylinder. He made the next hole on the other side with a larger drill bit while holding the cylinder over a large plastic cup, letting the fluid collect in the bottom. It tasted worse than Jerry imagined. The astringent quality of the fluid surprised him, numbing his tongue and throat. His tongue turned blue. It looked like he had consumed the Tidy Bowl Man and washed him down with his blue toilet water. For all Jerry knew, the basic chemical makeup of Tidy Bowl and the Magic 8-Ball juice were the same thing, and he'd soon find himself clutching at his throat, poisoned. Jerry waited for the end, but it never came. Of course, the liquid would have to be non-toxic to sell the toy to kids, like the goo inside the Stretch Armstrong he cut open as a child and dared his neighbor to taste. It was time for a question. Jerry closed his eyes and said, Will I die today? It was like somebody turned on a switch at the base of his spine. A blue flash of energy raced up his back. There was a strange taste, not in his palate, but deep within his mind. It tasted like ozone chlorine and the sick taste of the magic eight ball juice. Everything went black until what seemed to be a gigantic version of the magic eight ball triangle holding an answer appeared through the dark ink clouding his mind. There, taller than any pyramid constructed in Egypt, was the answer. My reply is no. He placed the hollow magic eight ball in the cylinder in a box addressed to his brother with a short note written on a post-it note. Here y'all go, because we're family. The next day, Jerry woke up and asked, Will I die today? He closed his eyes and the answer appeared before him. Yes, definitely. Jerry knew what he had to do. I'm sorry, sir, but we only offer tandem jumps. Yeah, I saw that, but I know that there are places that offer solo first jumps, Jerry said. I've looked into it, but I want to do this today. The other places I found were just too far away. Sorry, sir, but those are the rules. Jerry handed the instructor a handful of hundred-dollar bills. There's two thousand there. It's yours. The instructor smiled and said, Well, we do offer private instruction on occasion. I thought so. 
I'll even throw in a video of your jump for free. No, Jerry said. I don't want this recorded. Jerry barely paid attention in class. According to the eight ball, he was going to die, and what was the point of paying attention to something even important when destiny had you in its crosshairs, finger on the trigger? After his class and getting suited up and ready for his jump, Jerry was led to the plane. The sight of the de Havilland twin otter made him stop in his tracks. He knew he was going to die, but Jerry couldn't get over the thought of dying before getting the opportunity to jump. You'll be fine, the jumpmaster said in his most assuring voice. More people die in car crashes than planes. Jerry thought about his parents dying in their Mercedes-Benz and stepped aboard the plane. The climb to 10,500 feet wasn't as bad as he thought it would be. In fact, Jerry had fun. He looked out the windows, enjoying the view, wishing he'd hopped on a plane long before the last day of his life. There were so many places his fear of flying had kept him from seeing, and now it was too late. When summoned by the jumpmaster at the drop zone, Jerry surprised himself. There was no fear. He accepted what he was about to do. Most people died sitting or lying down. Jerry had the chance to go out big, and that was a rush. Standing at the open door was like standing on the edge of a gigantic map stretching to the horizon. Jerry loved maps. His great-uncle had a large collection of maps. Visits to his great-uncle when he was young always bored Jerry, but the maps he spent hours poring over spurred his imagination, leading him to a love of travel as an adult. He stepped forward, half expecting to feel the edge of a huge map beneath his feet. Nothing met the bottom of his foot, though, and just like that, Jerry was flying on his own, laughing all the way down, laughing in the face of death. He pulled the ripcord on the parachute. He at least wanted to make it look like he tried, attempting to deploy the main chute and then the backup chute before plummeting to meet the ground at 120 miles per hour. His laugh was cut short by the opening of the canopy, almost knocking the wind out of him. Why didn't I die, he thought. Jerry glided through the sky to a perfect touchdown. As he watched the Jumpmaster touchdown, he wished he'd taken him up on the offer of the video package. Jerry celebrated confronting his fears with a cup of cappuccino at a ritzy coffee shop. When he finally left, he heard somebody say, Hey, aren't you that lottery guy? He turned to see who called to him as he stepped into the street. It took the bus that hit Jerry 20 yards to stop. Darkness. No conscious thought. No tunnel of light. No waiting relatives. Nothing. Finally, I've got a pulse. He's alive. When Jerry was released from the intensive care unit to a normal hospital room, his attending doctor told him, You're a very lucky man. The only thing damaged in the accident was your head, and we stopped the swelling. You're going to be okay. Is the doctor right? Jerry silently asked to himself. Will I be okay? No acrid taste filled his head. No giant pyramid answer appeared in his mind. He asked again. Nothing. Are you all right? The doctor said. Yes. I just seem to have forgotten something. Well, that's to be expected. You get some rest, okay? Jerry stopped the doctor before she left the room. How long will I be in here? We want to watch you for at least another 48 hours. You should be out of here by the end of the week at most. Good. I have plans I'm looking forward to. Oh? What plans are those? Jerry smiled and said, a long overdue trip. 
I've always wanted to travel through Europe. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and Poddington Bear, released under a Creative Commons license. Not About Lumberjacks is also released under a Creative Commons license. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music. And for a 99-cent ebook version of Mr. Know-It-All, check out nolumberjacks.com store. Next month, an unemployed writer lands her dream job, but it comes with much more than she bargained for, in the form of an African gray parrot named Horus. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp. <laughs>